Hey, Assassinax, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Assassinax Files. And today we are going to be discussing 303 All Debts Paid. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and many, many more. Also, if you haven't had a chance, make sure you head over to the Sassanac Files on Facebook and Instagram to like and follow for all of the latest and greatest news in the Outlander universe. On Facebook, we are currently working our way into round two of the season four best episode bracket. We just reached our elite eight, which include America the Beautiful, The False Bride, Blood of My Blood, Birds and the Bees, Common Ground, and several others. So if you would like to have your voice heard where favorite episode of season four is concerned, head on over and cast your vote. All right, with all of that out of the way, let's talk about 303 All Debts Paid. This episode was written by Matt Roberts and directed by Brendan Mayer, and it is one of my absolute favorites of the series. I love All Debts Paid. First of all, for the title, so meaningful, and also for all of the juicy tidbits that actually happen in this episode. It was really just an amazing episode, and I can't wait to get into it with you. So, As always, we're going to break this down into Jamie's storyline and Claire's storyline. There are a few other little things that I want to talk about for this episode, but those are going to be the primary drivers of this episode. So first up are a couple of little things in Jamie's storyline. The first off is Myrta is alive, and this was a decision that was made by the showrunners It is one of the polarizing topics in the Outlander universe. (laughs) Show watchers versus book readers, and it comes to fight in words a lot of times. (laughs) I can see the merits of both. Honestly, it's one of those topics that in some respects, I can totally see why they did it. In others, not so much. And I think it becomes more apparent, like my dislike for this decision further on down the road as we get into season four and season five. But here in season three, I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. And here's why. When Myrta was kept alive in season three, it was really just a one-off thing. It didn't affect the plot very much. And so I didn't really have a problem with it. We They really were just using Myrta as a way to get into Jamie's head. He's Jamie's sounding board while they're in Ardsmere. And it really helps to kind of bring Jamie out of his shell a little bit more. Jamie's very closed off from the world still. He's just kind of putting on more of a show for people than he was before. So I didn't really have a problem with them keeping Myrta alive in this instance because I felt like it benefited the plot, but it didn't impact the plot. When we get on down the road in season four and season five, they make Myrta more of a primary character with his own storyline and that's where things get off the rails a little bit but here in particular I thought that it was honestly a good decision that really added value to the plot and made Jamie's story more interesting. Something else that I have kind of made a point to bring up in the past few podcasts as far as season three and Jamie's role within season three, especially the first half. I said that 
Jamie takes on a different role or a different persona in every episode leading up to Freedom and Whiskey. In the first episode, he was Red Jamie. He was the Jacobite. In the second episode, Surrender, he was the Dunbonnet. So we've worked our way up into episode three, where he's taken on this role as McDo, which all McDo means is son of the Black One. And they called his father Black Brian because of his dark black silky hair. So that's all McDo means. It's a sign of respect. The prisoners of Ardsmere view Jamie as their leader. Jamie is really the spokesperson to the governor of the prison. Anything that the prisoners need or it's kind of like um, the prisoners are unionized and Jamie is their union representative (laughs) only. Not really. But that's kind of the role that Jamie is playing in this scheme of things. And so this is something that has worked very well with Colonel Quarry, who was the previous governor of Ardsmere Prison, and he would take dinner with Jamie once a week and discuss what was going on with the prisoners, if there was anything that needed done or needed brought to Quarry's attention, anything like that. Where this episode picks up for Jamie is we are getting a new governor of Ardsmere Prison. And so the role of McDew is kind of casting more responsibility onto Jamie, which is very interesting because as he was leaving Lollybrock in the last episode, he was kind of giving up everything that he was responsible for, I guess. He was making the ultimate sacrifice and giving himself to the British so that his family would be safe. And so you would think that that would be the end of his responsibilities, then that he would just be looking out for himself in prison, right? But... No, of course not, because Jamie is a leader of men, and people automatically are drawn to that quality in him. Like, he just makes people feel safe and secure, and, like, he will take care of everything, and that's just the way he is. So it makes sense that in Ardsmere, the prisoners would also kind of give him that respect. So when John Gray comes on the scene, I don't know... I'm anxious to see if you guys really, like, the show watchers picked up on who this was at first. I mean, I think that the previews pretty much gave it away, but it is very interesting because I watched the show after having read the book, so obviously I knew who it was from the get-go. But I just find this whole Jamie and John dynamic absolutely fascinating And it's something that you get a hint of in Voyager, and obviously Jamie and John's relationship grows throughout the books, and it has its peaks and its valleys for sure. But it's so interesting to kind of look at the history of these characters. Jamie had this reputation as a bloodthirsty and ruthless Jacobite officer who would just rape and pillage and murder. Like, pretty much, this was the propaganda that was being spread about the Jacobite army. And Jamie, since he was so close to Prince Charlie, was really taking the brunt of this. And so this was the reputation that he w- he had. And this is what John is voicing whenever he tried to slit Jamie's throat at Corrieric. He's like, well, you're the traitorous and unprincipled Jacobite traitor, you know? And 
you can tell that Jamie's just kind of like, okay, well, he knows the rumors about him. But it's just so funny because you're not likely to ever find a more loyal and principled person than (laughs) Jamie Fraser. So it's really ironic. But this is the history of these two. It goes way back. And at this point, it has been nine years since Culloden. So John has grown up quite a bit. He was 16 when he and Jamie met, and they met about a year prior to Culloden. So it's been 10 years. And I love that you can literally see it on David Barry's face. He, whenever he's like, well, we have read Jamie, David Barry just like, it's almost like he has post-traumatic stress from that. He, It was John's biggest humiliation to be found tied to that tree by his brother and, and his brother's troops. And he really just hates Jamie's guts for it. Now, in retrospect... Jamie saved John's life. Like if any other Jacobite leader had found John, he would have died. And honestly, I'm sure that John was like, I would prefer to have died versus that humiliation. Like, you know, (laughs) but in all honesty, like this is the very complicated history that these characters already have built into the storyline. And it's so fascinating to me. So when you look at the dynamic that Sam Hewen and David Barry put into their characters, Jamie doesn't recognize John at first. He he thinks there's something familiar about him, but he can't place him. And obviously John knows who Jamie is, but he's not about to bring up his greatest embarrassment. So that's kind of where it's at. And these men they have so many similarities that it's impossible to imagine that they would ever not be friends. I mean, they're genuinely kind individuals. They're men of honor and principle. They fight for causes that they believe in. Their family is everything to them. They love very deeply. They are passionate men. They're compassionate men. So the similarities in their personalities really just fit together very well. Like they understand each other's motives. And so it always kind of made sense that they get along and that they understand each other. And so when this friendship starts to bloom in this episode, it's just kind of a natural continuation of who they are. But it's also a very interesting conundrum that we have as Jamie and John explore each other like they test each other on a regular basis and so I think the first real test that we see is when John has Jamie brought to his quarters and John's introducing himself they have the conversation about the rats like John is just appalled that there are rats and he was like well thinks he's having a act of goodwill by putting cats in the cells to kill all the rats. And Jamie's like, (laughs) well, not really, you know? He's like, well, surely they don't eat them. And Jamie says only if they're lucky enough to catch one. And then one thing that I really noticed was that Sam intentionally had his eyes downcast for most of the time. Like he was looking at the floor. He didn't want to make eye contact. He didn't want to seem aggressive in any way. But it made those moments when he did make eye contact so much more powerful. 
Because that entire scene when they're talking about the rats, Jamie's very supplicative. He's looking at the floor. He's like, yes, sir. No, sir. Whatever. And then at the end, he looks up and makes eye contact with John. And he's saying, God knows what you did to be sent here, but I hope you deserved it. And John kind of takes a step back because in that scene, you can really see him studying Jamie, like wondering, is this the man that I remember? Or are these memories of a child? You know, like, who is this guy? This is not red Jamie, you know? And then all of a sudden, Jamie looks up at him and says that and he kind of takes a step back and he's like, oh, there he is. So it's so cool that Sam plays it this way because he's very docile, as Corey put it. But to see these glimpses, like Jamie's in there. He's in there somewhere. And he's still a very prideful individual. He's only going to let you step on him so much, you know? He's that type, but he's also very mindful of the fact that he's got eyes on him. He's Red Jamie. He's the only prisoner kept in chains, so he has to mind his P's and Q's. So it's this very interesting dynamic that David and Sam play. It's really great. So the next big scene between John and Jamie that I wrote down to talk about. I mean, obviously there are limitless amounts of things to talk about with John and Jamie in this episode, but we would be here for hours. So I'm trying to simplify it. And the next scene that I really would like to discuss is where Jamie has escaped. They've been looking for him for three days. John's outside the prison and all of a sudden he reappears. And I love that this is the moment that we as an audience And John find out that Jamie has pretty much known who John is this whole time. And he's really just been keeping quiet, watching, waiting, waiting for the right time to strike. And I was really thinking about this particular moment before I uh, came on to record this. It struck me somehow for the first time. I mean, I've seen this episode like five times, maybe. I was thinking, why? would Jamie want to come back? Like, why would he come back? And it really made sense all of a sudden because Jamie has been searching the island for the gold and he really went in search of Claire. And when he didn't find her, like, obviously the bigger part of him knew, like, this is a fantasy. I'm not going to find Claire. But there was this sliver of hope in him that he was going to find her and everything was going to be okay. I mean, it's been almost 10 years at this point, and he's still holding on to this hope that she will return to him. And so he really just broke, I think. And he knew that going back to John was meeting his fate and that John had promised, when I see you next time, I will kill you. And so that's why Jamie was like, He put that sword in the ground and he said, well, here I am. The look of almost relief on Jamie's face when that blade touched his neck, like this tinge of fear, but this look also of, I'm ready, just take me, like I'm done with this. And to have it snatched away yet again, it's uh, like, that is the pattern of Jamie Fraser's life, like being ready to face death and then just not being able to die 
that's a situation that Jamie faces over and over again in this series. And I mean, I love Jamie. I never want to see him die, you know, but to see something ripped away from a person over and over again when it's the only thing they want, like that's hard to not feel a twist in your stomach. So that's kind of how I feel about that. But that all came about via the the story of the White Witch that Duncan Kerr was telling. And to be honest, this is a very interesting situation that Jamie has been put in. And I don't really think he had a choice but to do what he did, which was escape and go looking for Claire. I mean, common sense would say, yes, he absolutely had a choice. He knew that it wasn't really possible. And he risked his life, liberty, and his own happiness by escaping and then coming back, you know? But honestly, like, could he have lived with himself if he didn't go looking for her? He probably would have always wondered if she was out there looking for him. And so now at least he knows that it was just a story and nothing more. So I don't really think that he could have lived with the alternative, which is why ultimately he decided to escape and go look for Claire. And it ends up being okay, you know, because Jamie has this great conversation with John where he essentially comes clean with him. I mean, obviously, he doesn't tell him about the time travel aspect of it. And he doesn't tell him what we learn a few episodes from now, which is that there's a hell of a lot more in that box than that one sapphire he brought back. But all in all, Jamie's very honest with John. And I think John senses that and he honors that. And that's why he chooses to get Myrta a doctor and things seem to be looking up for the first time in a while. So three months passes on the other side of this. And this conversation that Jamie and John are having over uh, the chessboard after dinner one night is really one of the best scenes. I absolutely adore it because It's two men bearing their souls to each other. And John and Jamie both had suffered great, great losses due to Culloden and the Jacobite Rebellion. John lost Hector, his great love in life, and Jamie lost Claire. So they're kind of bonding over that. And of course, John refers to Hector as his particular friend, which in the 18th century didn't really mean what we take it to mean now in the 21st century. It just meant somebody that he was close to that was a really good friend, like your best friend would be your particular friend. So that's how he referred to Hector. And it's really this heartbreaking story because we find that John found Hector dying on the field at Culloden and how his older brother picked him up and dragged him away before he could say goodbye. He said, you know, his brother was embarrassed by his behavior and that he would get over it eventually. And John says this great line. He says, Hal is generally right, but not always. Some people you grieve over forever. And as Jamie's listening to John speak, I think Jamie recognizes a kindred spirit there that oh, this guy really does understand. Like, he lost someone very, very special to him and that he's still grieving his loss 10 years later. And he really does get my pain. And so 
Jamie responds in kind by talking about Claire. And he says her name for the first time in 10 years. And that is such a vivid moment that stands out to me. And I think it stands out to a lot of Outlander fans because Jamie has been in such pain for a decade now that he hasn't even been able to speak Claire's name. And so finding some peace and healing in John's company and companionship really just does wonders for my soul, honestly, even though it's followed right up with John stepping over the line and touching Jamie, insinuating that he would like to be more than friends. That's really just an unfortunate moment, honestly. And John realizes as soon as he does it, he's like, oh, yeah, this is not okay. And it's one of the great tragedies of Outlander. John is in love with Jamie and always will be. And Jamie is never going to be able to return his affection. And so especially when you read the Lord John books, this really becomes very apparent. It's so awful, really, honestly. It's basically the epitome of requited love to be willing to do anything and be anything for the person you care about most in the world, even though they can't really return the favor. And it's nothing, it's not just Jamie, like a matter of Jamie being unwilling. Jamie's incapable of returning that kind of affection. And so when we talk about Jamie's reaction, it really makes sense when you think about what Jamie went through in Wentworth. It's a very similar situation. It's a redcoat officer in a position of control over Jamie asking for sexual favors. Of course, John is pretty much the exact opposite of Blackjack in that he's actually got a soul and he actually cares about Jamie. It's not just about him being a psychopath and a sadist. It's really for John about the emotions of it. It's not about anything else. But Jamie is just so traumatized by what happened at Wentworth that he can't see past his own memories. And he forever has homosexuality entangled with what happened to him. And so that's what triggers his reaction of take your hand off of me or I will kill you. It's not necessarily his feelings towards John. It's his feelings about what happened to him at Wentworth and what Blackjack did to him. So that is probably the biggest indication of Jamie's post-traumatic stress since season two, that he's still dealing with that. But I really just find it such a powerful moment for both of those characters because John is so stung by what happened. Like, it's taken him a while. I mean, I know the show didn't really cover it, but a bunch of time has passed and it has taken him a hot minute to accept his feelings for Jamie and then to finally get up the nerve to put himself out there and be shot down like that, like literally have your life threatened for even touching a person like that has to sting so much. And I think David Barry did a phenomenal job in that entire scene. It was so great. So the very last scene that we get with John and Jamie after that big blow up is the ride to Hellwater. And Jamie's angry. 
he's still very angry about what happened with John and he's got himself all worked up into a frenzy thinking that John is going to punish him for refusing him because this is the only sort of reaction that he knows, right? Because Blackjack was such an evil bastard that Jamie can't bring himself to expect any less. And so when John replies with kindness instead of anger, it really throws Jamie and he kind of realizes, oh, maybe I was wrong about this guy. I love the whole conversation that John and Jamie had where they're talking about, like, I couldn't give you what the other men got out of this. Like, I can't give you transportation to the colonies and your freedom. Like, that's not something that the king has seen fit to give you. But I can do this for you. I can make sure that you live a comfortable life with people that I know will treat you well. Honestly, that touches my heart so much that John, you know, he regrets it, what he did. He knows that Jamie can't return his feelings and that it was unfair to ask that of him. And so this whole taking him to Hellwater and agreeing to make sure he has the best of what life can give at this juncture really just speaks to the type of man he is. He's such a great guy. I love Lord John as a character. And if you guys have not read the Lord John series yet, please, please do take the time to do that because that series covers Jamie's time at Hellwater. And it is a really good fill in the blank for what we don't get in the main series. But that kind of um, wraps up the Jamie John storyline for Ardsmere. And so what we have left to discuss is Claire's storyline. And there is a lot to discuss in this episode. A lot happens. Jamie's storyline really only covers the span of a couple of years. But this storyline for Claire is about 10 years. It picks up in Boston in 1956 and it ends in 1966. So by the end of All That's Paid on the 20th century side of things, we are caught up to the present. But what we end up covering in this episode is really just... The dissolution of Frank and Claire's relationship. I I really love that even in all of the hurt and pain that we see in this episode, we still see that Frank and Claire are friends. They still care about each other. Frank coming in and saying, oh, hard surgery and let it go. There's nothing you can do now. And he said, well, it's nothing I haven't said before. And Claire just smiles and said, no, it's not, you know, so they still care about each other and they're very civil. But at the same time, it's been 18 years of living a half existence. And so they have a couple of really powerful conversations in this episode, which I will get get into here in a moment. The first big thing to understand, though, is that Frank and Claire deciding to have an open marriage really just opens up this episode. It's very interesting that this is how the writers chose to play it because this is not what happened in the book. This part of the series is a very touchy subject for a lot of book fans because book fans feel that Frank never would have behaved in such a manner. He never would have had a woman on the side 
especially someone he was very serious with that he was looking to replace Claire with, that that never would have happened in the books. I tend to have a different view on Frank than some people do. I honestly think that it is something Frank from the books would have done and that the show Frank versus book Frank meld together very well. It's a difference of opinion and it's all based on interpretation. There is infidelity in the books, in my opinion. And that is something that I have had people argue with me about because we are getting the story from Claire's point of view and not Frank's. So we will never know for sure. It's just Claire's assumption on what is happening. But I mean, normally, if you're going to accuse someone of adultery, you have a reason to accuse them of adultery is my my thinking on it. So for the purposes of this episode, we're going to go with my thinking on it. (laughs) And So therefore, I didn't think that this episode was this much of a stretch. Now, Sandy never was a character in the books. She didn't exist. And so that is kind of where we have border territory. But this episode is geared toward the show. So we will talk about what the show decided to do. So the show makes it seem like Frank found Sandy and that they were together. And she was really the only one that he was ever unfaithful with. And that it was a very loving and serious relationship that endured for many, many years. And the first time that Claire finds out about this is when she's trying to be nice and trying to make things work. And she's saying, hey, Frank, I don't have class tonight. Do you want to go to the movies? We can watch The Searchers or Carousel. And he's like, oh, I've already seen both with my girlfriend (laughs) is the subtext there. It brings up the fact that, you know, you're the one that brought it up. It was your idea and I'm being discreet. And Claire doesn't really have a problem with it. I mean, it kind of hurts her because I don't think she assumed Frank would move on that quickly. But all in all, Frank is being discreet about it. And that's really all Claire can ask because she can't give him what he needs. She can't be a wife to him. She's in love with Jamie, you know? So this is her way of giving Frank back some of his freedom, I guess. Where the line in the sand is drawn is when Claire has her graduation party and Sandy shows up at the house with all of her friends from med school and their spouses and Brianna is there. And all of a sudden, everyone knows that Frank is having an affair with this woman. Like it literally is the most embarrassing thing that she could think of. And so I understand Claire's anger 100%. I totally get it because, yeah, that would piss me off too. And it leads into this fantastic scene. And I think Katrina and Tobias did an amazing job. After Frank gets back that night, Claire accuses Frank of doing it on purpose to humiliate her. And I honestly do not think that it was done intentionally. I think he was trying to be discreet and he honestly got the times messed up. But when Frank is talking to Claire, the pain in his eyes, he's like, you know, maybe I did do it on purpose. And he's talking about, you honestly think that anybody at Harvard believes we're happily married? Like, you're not as good of an actress as you think you are. And this conversation, for all of the snark and sarcasm, there is a real undercurrent of just misery 
it's so hard to watch because, you know, Frank loves Claire so much and he loves Brianna. But when Claire suggests divorce, you can tell he's considered it. But if you'll remember Jerry and Millie from last episode, we find out that they are now divorced. And Frank watched his friend have his children taken from him because a court decided that children need their mother more than their father, and he doesn't get to see his kids anymore. And Frank is terrified that that is going to happen to him and Brianna. And he says he's not going to risk that. And Claire's claiming, Frank, I would never take Brianna from you. And he explodes and he says one of probably the best, most iconic lines of the episode, which is, well, forgive me if I don't risk everything on your promises, Claire. You have not been very good at keeping them. Like, she promised that she would let everything go. She would move on. They would move to Boston. They would be happy. And none of that has come to fruition. (laughs) And so Frank loves Brianna more than life itself. She is his little girl. And the mere thought of having her ripped from him and never seeing her is enough for him to endure whatever else he has to face because he can't stand being away from her. And so that is kind of the ultimate testament to where Frank is at in all of this. And then the minute Brianna turns 18, she graduates high school, he's done with it. And you can tell this really devastates Claire because she hasn't really thought about it. She hasn't really considered the fact that Frank wanted a divorce. After he said, no, we're not doing it, she just was like, okay, well, we're not doing this. Only to find out that for the next 10 years, he's been waiting for Brianna to become an adult where the courts can't step in and say, no, she belongs with her mother. And now that she can make her own decisions and she's an adult, he's like, I'm out. And it really is this awful moment because Claire panics. She's honestly, because Frank is in her head. And saying, you know, between the hospital and med school, you've barely been here. Like, why would Brianna side with you? I'm the one that's been here raising our daughter. And so Claire is lashing out because she's so frightened that Frank is going to take Brianna and she's never going to see her daughter again. And it's just so awful that it's come to this. This whole moment of dialogue, when after Claire explodes, Frank says, this isn't about you and me anymore. Brianna's a grown woman. She can make her own decisions and she has her own life. I would like to live the rest of my life with a woman who truly loves me. You know, I'm not a big fan of Frank, but in this moment, I, my heart broke for him because he has literally endured through it all to be a father to Brianna. And now that she's raised, he wants to be happy. He loves Claire, but he fully accepts that She's never going to be able to give him what he needs. And Sandy can. So he would rather be with her. And I think that the show actually did a great job of making Frank a sympathetic character in this moment. And I know that there's a lot of disagreement for that with book readers. But I think that they succeeded in what they were trying to do. So yeah, it was really just a touching scene. And of course, the moment that everyone recognizes from this 
episode is when Frank says, you couldn't look at Brianna without seeing him, could you? Without that constant reminder, might you have forgotten him in time? And Claire says, that amount of time doesn't exist. There you have it. This is the final impasse and they are calling it quits. It's really just this catastrophic end to a 18, well, actually, if you count the time that they were married and stuff before the stones and all of that, Claire and Frank were really married for over 20 years. It really is just so heartbreaking to watch. In in the grand scheme of things, when you look at all debts paid, what that means, that title, every single character in this episode is paying a debt of some sort, whether it's Jamie paying the debt of his time in prison for his crimes against the crown, whether it's Frank paying his debt to fulfill his promises and raise Brianna, or whether it's John's debt that he's paying to give Jamie a good life and repay what Jamie gave him all of those years ago. It's so full circle. As far as parallels that Jamie and Claire had this episode, they were kind of hard to view, but they were there, honestly. It was all about making new friends. We see Claire developing this relationship with Joe, or whether it was Jamie's new friendship with John. I think that was probably the biggest parallel, honestly. So with all of that out of the way, I want to name my quote of the episode, which was, you gave me my life all those years ago. Now I give you yours. I hope you use it well. I love that line from John. Of course, I love John anyway. But that really just kind of sums up who he is as a person and made me so excited to see him more in this show because David Barry, I will be honest, I was skeptical when I saw that he was cast. I mean, obviously he is very talented and he's absolutely gorgeous, but doesn't look like what I expected for Lord John at all. But after seeing his interpretation of this character, I cannot get it out of my head. Like he is Lord John to me now. So I absolutely think he did a fantastic job, which is why I named him my performance of the episode along with Tobias Menzies, because with Frank passing at the end of this episode, it is Tobias's quote unquote last episode on Outlander. And He's just brought so much joy to me as a viewer. He is a phenomenal talent. And that last scene that Katrina had with him when he was laying in the hospital morgue and she leans over Frank and says, I really did love you, you know, and that tears at my heart every time because it's like just because Jamie was her epic love doesn't mean that she didn't love Frank. And I think that Tobias and Kat both did a great job of portraying that deep affection that they had. It might not have been a passionate love, but they really did love each other very much. And so, yeah, I think Tobias did a great job. There were some fantastic scenes in there that really just made you feel all the feels, really made you sympathetic to Frank's plight in this whole thing. 
And so, yeah, Tobias Menzies and David Barry. We have a, a veteran on his way out the door and a newbie on his way in. So I just thought it was a lovely little bookend. All right, guys. So that wraps up all I have to say on the episode. But as always, I open it up for the masses so that you guys could get your opinions out there for me to read on the podcast. I got lots of love for David Barry, like lots and lots of love. Pretty much people sharing my sentiment on he's not who I expected to be cast for the role, but oh my gosh, we can't imagine anybody else to play him. It's so great. I totally see what the casting director saw in him, and I'm so glad that they made the choice to bring him on board. So I'm sharing all of your love for David Barry. Angela Hickey says hated the Claire and Frank side. So she was one that did not like the Claire and Frank storyline for this episode, which is interesting because I actually really liked it. And like I said, I thought that it made Frank more of a sympathetic character. Apparently, she does not think that is the case. So my last comment is from Joan Cohen. As always, she leaves me with this lovely comment. She says, love, 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 Lord John. When he reacts negatively in the beginning of the episode to the news that Red Jamie is one of the prisoners, I always think he'd be floored to know just how entwined he'll become in Jamie's life in the future. I think David Barry is perfectly cast. Claire and Frank just make me sad. Claire is trying to make things work companionably, suggesting a night out at the movies, but the conversation goes south so quickly. Passive aggressive much, Frank? Oh, that's odd. I didn't think he was passive aggressive at all, Joan. I thought he was just maybe sort of halfway embarrassed that (laughs) he had to admit that he'd been out with another woman. Like, I think that he was just still kind of uncomfortable with the whole open marriage thing. Joan continues, We know from the book that Frank was a bit envious that Claire had such a passion for her work, which he didn't. And I think that resentment shows here, not to mention resenting the loss of her love. So yeah, I think that you're right. Um... That's something that I didn't mention in the in the podcast, but Frank wasn't really uber supportive of Claire's journey into medicine, but he knew that she had a passion for it. And so he wanted to support her in that endeavor. Um, he wasn't like uber supportive. Sure, honey, whatever you need. But he's like, we'll figure it out if this is something you want to do. But there was a resentment there because he kind of feels like he fell into the history field and He doesn't really have this deep, unseated passion for it. Joan says, Their later arguments are painful to watch. So much hurt on both sides and so sad that they both ended up living a half-life. Luckily, Claire gets to have a second act. Yes, yes, luckily she does. I'm glad Claire says a loving goodbye to Frank. That was her debt paid to him. Absolutely. The scenes with Lord John and Jamie are wonderful, especially Lord John burying his soul about the loss of Hector and Jamie finally being able to talk about Claire. It's not surprising with that John reaches out to Jamie when they have this moment of emotional intimacy. On a side note, Diana Gabaldon co-wrote a short, short story with Steve Barry called Past Prologue that tells the story of Duncan Kerr and the White Witch. It's fun to see Jamie from a different perspective. That's interesting. I see, I haven't read Past Prologue yet, but I have heard good things about it. So I will have to check it out, especially if that's what it's about. Cool. I'm excited. Give me something else to add to my list. All right. So with that, that about wraps up this episode, guys. 
I absolutely love talking about All Debts Paid. It's one of those that is a fantastic character piece overall. So, yes. I uh, hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Make sure to join me next week as I discuss Season 3, Episode 4 of Lost Things. And it's a good one, guys. Make sure to join me. Lord John comes back. We also get some new characters on the scene, and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on them. I should be posting the thread for the new episode here in the next few days, so look for that late this week, probably Thursday or Friday. Make sure to get your comments in so I can read them on the next episode of The Sassnack Files. Also, if you have any questions or comments on this episode or any other episode of The Sassnack Files, make sure to send me an email to thesassnackfiles at gmail.com or reach out to me via private messenger on The Sassnack Files Facebook, or Instagram. Until next week, guys, stay safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Have a good one.